Welcome to The Raw Review. My name is Matthew. And I'm Briley. And we'll be your co-hosts for this series of conversations where we'll be sitting down with collectors, artists, and other members of the RawDAO community. Today, we'll be talking with Carlo Vanderoor. Carlo is a founding member of RawDAO and the co-founder of Satellite Lab, a creative studio developing innovative lighting technologies for photography and filmmaking. In this episode, Carlo tells us about how he got involved with NFTs, the story behind his project September 20th, which inspired the RAW logo, and his Galaxy Brain lighting technology Plate Light that allows users to retroactively control light after footage has been shot. Carlo, thank you so much for joining us today on this episode of the RAW Review. We're uh, really looking forward to chatting. Did you study photography in university or what was your entry point to photography? I did study photography at university in New Zealand, which I guess is what they call college in the States. But I had an introduction to it as a kid as well. My parents were pretty creative people and we had, uh, this is the origin story, um, the baby walking around with the, the camera, okay. which was actually, in my case, it was a baby twin lens reflex camera that we had and it was one of those cameras you would look you would look down into it and would have like a ground glass screen on the top of it and you know it was a baby TLS so it fitted into my hands as a little kid I didn't had no idea what the purpose of this object was but I'd walk around the house navigating the world and kind of framing up the cat and my mum's feet and and stuff through this this ground glass screen and it wasn't until you know years later my uncle who was a photographer told me that you got there as a camera and uh, what you need for that son is film and he bought me i can't remember if it's called 126 or 127 millimeter film it, w- it was the 120 cut down that wasn't the cartridge and so i shot a roll of film and then uh needed to process it and when i was a little older i built a dark room under my parents stairs and in new zealand in the 80s I just dated myself it was <laughs> <laughs> It was hard to get hold of kind of anything. And so I remember having to build the dark room out of like parts of my mother's old hairdryer and stuff, but ended up building this and, and it was a way that I could process the film and enlarge it. And that became like a way for me as a sort of introverted kid to go out into the world with this camera and come back into the dark room and sort of explore and understand the world from the introverted safety of the darkroom space. And then, yeah, I studied photography at university, and I was very lucky to have an amazing professor, Gavin Hipkins, who I think, looking back, was really ahead of his time. Yeah, so that, that would have been my introduction to photography. It's interesting that the camera played such a important role in your early childhood and how that ended up manifesting itself. And not only for the fact that you went to university to study photography, but also that you were in the work that you've made, the idea of the camera and the different elements of the photographic process is really important to your work. So it's funny that that was kind of the origin of, of all of this was sort of wandering around using this camera without knowing what exactly it did. And that ended up leading to the what I would call very process-based and material investigations that we see in your in your later work. Maybe we can start by talking about your project September 20. We could even say the birth of this project. Um, so for listeners who aren't familiar, uh, can you describe the images a bit for us and tell us uh, how they were made? Yeah, so September the 20th is a project that started on September 20, 2014. And 
Leading up to that project, I'd been working on a process that was sort of re-articulating past moments captured on negatives in the present. It was sort of reactivating the chromogenic chemistry of a pictorial image. But I was at a point where I was sort of struggling with the complexity of the, the project. And what happened on September the 20th is my son was born and he was born really suddenly. So my wife slept through labor on that, that morning. <laughs> okay. And, yeah, when she woke up, she, you know, she was having these contractions that, that I timed. And I was like, oh, you're, you're about to have a baby. So I, I called the midwife and, and the doula. And then I just kind of did that male freak out thing. I had a surf buddy that was living in the house with us. We were out on the end of Long Island. And I was warming towels in an oven and inflating a pool and filling it with water. And long story short, what happened is the birth happened very quickly. And my son was born in that pool under an oak tree at our house. But I had had this kind of, I guess, in retrospect, sort of ambitious idea of, of documenting the process on 4x5 film. But I didn't have enough time to load the film into the camera because I was busy. And so what I did do is I, I scattered that. I had boxes of paper and film, photographic paper and film, color, and cryogenic. And I scattered that into the light that my son was born into at the time that he was born. And then, you know, I put them back into these lightproof boxes and, and cut the umbilical cord and went about doing some other fatherly stuff. I thought of that box of exposed paper as, as this kind of precious item, but in a way it solved a problem that I was having with that project. So I, I eventually developed these sheets of, of film and paper and put them through the process that I was using. And that process, you know, I, was, I guess I was thinking of these records of white light that were exposed to the sun that he was born into as sort of akin to like raw data. Okay. And the process that those negatives go through is they're, they're folded and they're placed into a tank of chemistry. And that chemistry liquefies the red, green, and blue layers that make up that record of white light. So red, green, and blue being the additive colors that make up white. And as these dye layers come out of the chromogenic negative, they form shapes. And one color comes out before the other, so they start to form colored shapes. And at that point in the process, I re-photograph it. So light is then passed through the tank again, and it's recorded on a new sheet of film. So each negative in that sequential process is destroyed in the tank and a new one is made as it's capturing what's been destroyed. So in that sense, the record of light is sort of passed forward in time and the process shifts what is that original record of, of white light or raw data into a record of accumulated time as additive color. Wow. I mean, that, that's a lot to be working on at <laughs> such a pivotal moment in your life. I mean, it, it's both funny and impressive that you managed to make a project while this was all going on. So this wasn't something that you had planned deliberately beforehand. It was just sort of a improvised approach to the fact that you hadn't loaded the film yet. Yeah, I mean, the process is something that I'd been working on, but I'd been doing it with images that contain pictorial content. So photographs of specific times and places from a family history. And that's what was sort of complicating the strategy of the work at the time. And so when this happened, it, for me, it was a beautiful accident and that it, it solved, it, it simplified the process. And I think drew my attention to what it was that was interesting to me about why I was using that process. And this didn't, you know, this didn't all happen on the week that he was born. You know, there was certainly <laughs> sort of time before and after that this occurred with him. And, and I think, you know, one of the reasons we're bringing this up is that raw collected 
the first piece from that series, which was called Set One, Number One. Mm -hmm. So that sequence that was minted on Foundation follows the trajectory of, of one of these. It started as a, as a sheet of paper, and then it was sequentially, it was, I used four by five films throughout the process, but it follows the path of one of these sheets of film, uh, sheets of paper rather. And what Raw collected was the first one. And what I like about that is that to me, that image is about birth and it's, and it's about potential. So it seems, you know, it seems very appropriate. That's very sweet. I'm curious to know, what does your son think of the work? What does this representation of, say, his light mean to him? Ah, that's funny you say that, Briley, because that's exactly what he calls it. He calls it my light. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's funny, you know, kids absorb certain information really easily. And this is something that is sometimes hard to describe to people, this project. Um, but it's something that he just immediately looked at and saw and, and understood. And something that's been surprisingly powerful for me in this project is meeting other parents. I, I showed this project in Poland recently in a show there and um, came across, you know, someone who was, who was there and was crying and we ended up having a long conversation about, basically about fatherhood. You know, he, he, had, had, he had a somewhat horrific story to share, which I, I won't share here, but it's done, you know, interestingly within the NFT space, we often talk as artists about the additional access that NFTs give us to collectors and, and this kind of immediate dynamic that we have when there's not a gallery or, or a, a dealer that's governing that dynamic. Mm -hmm. And with this project in particular, I had a lot of interaction with parents and fathers specifically who were collecting the work who had who it resonated with. So and that was one of the early things that I learned quickly about the NFT space was the power of that immediate dynamic. Do you have any thoughts on sort of how it feels for these images that are, I think, very personal to be iterated on and be made into the logo for Dao, which is sort of how this image has at least come to take a place in the DAO? It's interesting for it to have gone through this trajectory. Well, I think that the images are, you know, far enough removed from that specific moment of, you know, my child's birth, you know, obviously for myself, they're entwined, but I think that I'm aware that they're not necessarily received as a photograph of a child coming out of a woman, for example. <laughs> so I felt because I was also part of the early stages of Raw and, you know, we were all there sort of building, it seemed appropriate to have an image like this. And no, I felt honored really that that came about. I think if I remember rightly, I think Luke Lucas maybe turned it into a logo. And the cool thing I saw recently is, I don't know if these actually exist, but I saw stickers and perhaps a hat mm -hmm. and buttons. Has that happened? Or, or? Nate has made some buttons and I believe, was it Lucas who, who made the stickers? L Lucas had some sort of sticker hookup. So he, uh, he got a bunch of stickers made. So I think there'll be a little bit of raw merch at NFT NYC. So Cool. Do you maybe want to tell us a little bit more about how you first got involved with Rado? Yeah. So Raw was in its early stages at a time that, you know, I, I was becoming very interested in the NFT space. I had launched a few projects and I was pretty thirsty for more photography in the space and more conversation around photography. And part of what I was doing at that point was onboarding other photographers who I sort of wanted to see active in the space. And so when the opportunity 
to join Raw as a founding artist came about, that seemed like a great opportunity. At that time, there weren't a lot of other platforms around. And so, you know, Raw and what Raw could do was undefined. But the possibility of helping steer that ship was pretty exciting. And so I think Shane, Shane Lavalette and, and Studio 137 were getting involved. And through them, I also got involved. And there's some things that I remember thinking about in those early stages that I'm still, you know, really excited about for Raw. One thing is that, you know, we might see collecting in the NFT space that somewhat echoes the traditional art world, you know, the sort of art world collecting that we know already. But we might also see a continuation of this shift in value and appreciation away from what the traditional gatekeepers and institutions have been defining as collectible. Mm -hmm. And if that's driven by artists and collectors here, it makes raw, and especially I think what we're calling the community curation, a really fascinating experiment, because that could operate as a sort of a reflection of this possible shift in value and appreciation if it occurs. So that to me is, is sort of the the great experiment of Raw. Yeah. Um, and I've loved being part of that community curation process as well. I think we're very, you know, privileged to be in the position of, of being able to sort of nominate and vote on work. Mm. Yeah, it definitely feels like one of the biggest perks to me about joining Raw is being able to participate in the community curation. And it's true what you say about this being historically a more gatekept area of how traditional institutions have collected work and this new system. I mean, it's never been done before and it's giving artists a direct hand in the role of acquiring work, which is usually something left to wealthy collectors or other curators or other people. It's very interesting to see artists being able to participate directly in shaping this new way of thinking about what is worth being collected. I'm curious to know, do you also collect NFTs? Yeah, so I, that was another new aspect of this for me. After launching a few projects, I was lucky to be in the position of being able to support other artists, which I've done a little bit in real life, but you know, only in sort of eight by 10, 11 by 14 edition of a hundred kind of way, you know, right. but so yeah, I was able to, I think I first collected uh, Rodrigo Venezuela through assembly and later Danny Gordon and Matt Porter and, mm. and Roe Etheridge and Hannah Whitaker. And, you know, I have a collection that I wouldn't say that I've been deliberately curating, but I feel very lucky to have been able to support these people and to have acquired their work along the way. Has your relationship to collecting changed since entering Web3, whether it's your own work being collected or acquiring works for your own collection? Um, I think my interest in photography in the space has probably changed. Uh, when I entered the space, I was very interested in it as a marketplace and, you know, these new discussions around provenance and permanent storage. And I was interested, I guess, in looking at what held value in, in the art world as a way to indicate what might hold value in the NFT space, you know, thus Roe Switch, Danny Corden and, and so on. But more recently, I've become far more interested in uh, the blockchain and, and the smart contract as creative tools. So I'm spending more time looking now at artists who are using the blockchain beyond a marketplace system. So that's probably, I think, where I'm going to be focusing. You know, if I do continue to collect or, or swap works, right, that's another wonderful thing that we can do much easier now. If I was going to send you a print, Briley, in Canada, yeah, we just probably wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's going to roll it in a tube, and, but but we might if it's online. Mm-hmm. And so that's something I've been doing quite actively as well, is exchanging work with, with other artists. Having been involved since the beginning of this, where are your thoughts on where Raw was when it started last fall and where it's at now? I think it's made a lot of really great pivots. I think um, the notion of moving away from the idea of onboarding artists was great. I think that there's a lot of great support now that exists. I I think what we needed was a watering hole in between these other sort of maybe more vertical platforms that all sort of existed in their own niche a watering hole where we could we could really come and discuss something beyond the very basic problems that the NFT space was facing and to focus on collecting, which is really the, the power that was in the hand of Raw and what made Raw kind of unique. Mm-hmm. I also love that we moved to a community curation system. If I'm remembering correctly, I think Justin maybe sort of spearheaded a, a pivot there which I just think was a fantastic idea, not only for everybody that's involved in the process, but also because of what I was saying before, that I think we already have a space that is governed by few, and I'm not that interested in replicating what we've already experienced in in the traditional art world here. Are you involved in any other DAOs? And how do you feel about both the potential of working in this decentralized way, but also maybe some of the challenges that come along with that? I haven't been involved in any other DAOs. I wish I had time. I, I find that even the time that I have to dedicate to Roar is kind of fickle because I run a studio and art practice and I work as a director. And so mm-hmm. sometimes I'm just torn away for weeks or months at a time. I really appreciate both of you guys. And there's a number of other people who I can see are so dedicated to keeping Raw running. And I see a lot less personal and political discourse happening and and a lot more uh, of a focus on the mission now than I think I did in the earlier days of Raw, where I think people become very personally entangled with decisions that the organization is making because there are so many voices within that decision-making process. No, that, that's really sweet of you, Kyle. I mean, I, I think we've really only been around for a few months now, but we've definitely been trying to move things forward and and get things done and really focus on, like you said, sort of the, the core mission and trying to develop a system to make these acquisitions that is transparent and equitable and open and that, like you said, doesn't replicate the same issues that we are trying to kind of escape in the traditional art world. You know, I, I think that the beauty of this space is being able to think of a new system and implement it in a way that works for more people rather than fewer people. So I, I think that's sort of broadly what DAOs can enable for not only NFT photography, but just the, the space as a whole more generally. So maybe we can talk a bit about some of your interactive NFTs because we've been scoping around on OpenSea and We are particularly fond of Modulator 1, where you've used a technology called Plate Light that enables the scene's lighting to be controlled after the footage is taken. We've read this described as captured in camera in a fraction of a second. This arrested past moment is in flux when viewed in the present. So can you help us understand a little bit how this is possible and sort of how can the same scene be captured with two different lighting conditions and then be controlled retroactively. On the surface, it seems impossible. (laughs) 
Yeah, uh, and it was impossible prior to Platelight. I could back up and, and tell you a little bit about Satellite Lab, which is the R&D lab at which we sort of invent and patent these technologies that are used. Absolutely, yeah, go that, for it. You know, that background might, might help explain it. So this was also, this was the same year that my son was born again, uh, 2014. I was working on another project developing a camera and lighting technology. And the goal there was to sort of intervene in the vocabulary that I felt mediated our understanding of time through photography. And that's, you know, for the last 10 years, most of my work has revolved around how we experience and deal with time through photography. And at at that point, I was sort of looking at this sort of Edgerton or Cartier-Bresson decisive frozen moment, you know, as one end of the spectrum and something like time-lapse, you know, this language of moving light at the other end of the spectrum. And to me, these just seemed like, you know, products of how we saw our world represented through photography. They were constructs that affected our understanding of time. And so I wanted to sort of experiment with upending that language. You know, what if we could reverse this and use the language of, of, of moving light, uh, of passing time within images that are arrested in time? And I had an idea for doing that. And at that point, I was looking to fund it through collectors, which is a model that I'd used for previous work. But I was feeling also a little bit encouraged by uh, some of my heroes like Edgerton or, or Maholi Naj, who had sort of prolific inventors in their own right. And, you know, Maholi Naj had this beautiful idea of the potential to use light as a new plastic medium. And at that point, I was also in a program at the New Museum in New York a sort of a residency program, and they were very much about sustainable practices. So the idea there was like, don't make something like this just for one project. You know, what if it could become an ongoing concern for you? And so this is when I started this research and development studio where we could create photographic technology, where we could have, you know, sort of these crazy ideas and they could be developed and turned into a reality. Mm -hmm. So there was a learning curve for me, it was very steep there about investment and patents and things. And I started that lab with my friend Stuart Rutherford and another guy called Matthias Coria. Mm-hmm. Uh, Matthias was a co-founder of Behance. And Stu, if you've ever seen What We Do in the Shadows, the original What We Do in the Shadows, Stu plays Stu. He plays himself. And he's a software engineer, okay. which, which, is, which is why we teamed up to, to work on this stuff. Right, right. And so it was through Satellite Lab that... I just began inventing technology and working as a director and, and working on installations and, and films and so on. And the first thing that we invented was called dynamic light, which is a way of moving light sources so fast that the rest of the world appears to be standing still, basically. And for me, this was an opportunity to deal with the past in this kind of plastic way that I felt like Maholi Naj was referring to, to present a decisive moment, yet have it be changeable through moving light in the present. Right. And yeah, as you mentioned, there's a couple of examples of this. One is on Super Rare, which is called Two Recollections of a Chair. And there's another one called Amorphous Solid, which is on OpenSea, which I think Blockbird owns. And that Amorphous Solid, that was the first interactive lighting NFT. And so this process led back in 2014 to creating these sort of interactive moving light projects online or in physical spaces. You know, the first one I installed that year was at the ground floor of the new museum and in which when you walk into the gallery space, your point of view in front of the work changes the work. So as you move in front of this decisive frozen moment, 
the decisive frozen moment changes with you, it becomes mutable. It was a satisfying moment, you know, showing that in the ground floor of the new museum, but it was complicated to install. The fact that you were standing in front of something and changing it was not invisible. It was a very sort of visible part of the tech. Mm -hmm. And it was also, it was hard to sell. Like at that moment I'd moved from selling prints and books in galleries to creating video installation work. And the galleries I was working with I don't think really had capacity to move that work. So there was a problem there. And I remember sitting, Kevin McCoy and I shared a desk at the new museum. And in 2014, Kevin was inventing the first NFT. And I remember having a discussion with him about this problem of, you know, how do you sell a digital work like this? And Kevin, being well ahead of his time, said, well, I just invented the NFT. We well, didn't say it like that, but he had. And I think we just weren't ready for Kevin at that time, right? So zap forward to 2021 and NFTs are actually solving exactly this problem. They're enabling an interface in which interaction like this can occur and it can be invisible and you can interact with something without really noticing that you're touching the screen or moving the mouse because we do that every day. And so your attention is drawn to the, to the work itself and it solves the marketplace problem. So th these were some of the things that I found very exciting about the NFT space when I first came across it. But to answer your question about plate light, <laughs> <laughs> plate light is the second thing that we invented and patented a way of capturing multiple lighting setups at the same time. So the simplest way to think of this would be we capture day and night or light from the left and light from the right at the same time on the same camera. A more complicated version of that is that there might be 20 different light sources coming from 20 different angles. But either way, we can recombine these afterwards in a frame or an edit so that we can sculpt or relight or switch the lighting. So it provides a lot of generative or interactive potential, right? We can turn off the sun. We can change the appearance and narrative of a moment. We can experience the mutability of a past moment. That is how Modulator 1 was created. Okay, can I prod you a bit on that? So we're capturing two or more light sources. We're using the same camera. How, how is that actually possible? Does, are you using a very high frame rate when shooting and then somehow working with the, like the refresh rates of, of the lights that are lighting the scene? Or like, how is this actually possible? Yeah, that's exactly how we do it. I, I mean, it's kind of funny because the lighting technology that you're developing with satellite, it seems extremely difficult to maybe explain to the average person. Do you feel kind of the same way about NFTs? You know, <laughs> it's, it feels like sometimes, you know, that, that technical complexity can almost become a barrier to the tech being adopted and uh, <laughs> becoming, you know, mainstream or widespread because it is complex, but it works and it solves a problem and it has a use, you know, these are things that we can use right now, but it's also sometimes a struggle to get them into the hands of people. I'm wondering, have you felt this kind of, not necessarily a frustration, but have you felt this way sometimes about NFTs and some of the tech that you're working on? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely, definitely with both. Um, when we first developed Dynamic Light, it was extremely hard to explain. And we're in the early days of Plate Light at the moment. Our first feature film comes out in cinemas next Friday. So it's still, you know, that'll be the first use of it in, in cinema history. So it's still early days. And in order to explain these things, we make demos that sort of walk people through this. This is a similar discussion. You know, Matt, Matthew Porter and I started something called Zone, where we, we onboarded a photographer called Ro Estridge through that platform. Mm -hmm. And as we were having discussions with artists, not Ro specifically, but, but just artists that we were talking to about the NFT space, it did get to a point where we felt like 
you know, we needed to create at least a document, if not perhaps a video that just walks people through, you know, as an introduction to the NFT space, because I feel like we probably all feel like we're saying the same thing over and over. And it does take a long, you know, it took me a long time to understand the complexity of what's possible through the blockchain and and the smart contract, let alone what's happening maybe socially within the space. Mm. So there's a lot to absorb. Yeah. Yeah. And I've gone through that recently with uh, Modulator One is a generative project. And so we spent many months, you know, researching generative uh, and building generative code. And that's similar in a way. It takes a little bit to explain that. Yeah. Could you tell us a bit more about the generative aspect of this project and how the collector is involved in creating the work? Yeah. So Modulator One came about because I was very curious about that potential for collaborative processes with the blockchain and the idea of sort of relinquishing control to an algorithm and to chance. I'd seen, you know, autoglyphs I was very interested in and other work that I'd seen on on art blocks, which were authored or co-authored at the time that they collected by the collector. And I was surprised that we hadn't seen an online dynamically generative photography project. You know, generative had become this very widely used term at that point, but it largely described the use of an algorithm at at some point in the process Mm -hmm. prior to minting the work. So Modulator 1 was an experiment. It was the first generative photographic project in which the images are generated by the collector when minted. And so I should give a shout out here to Daiska. You know, I'm not enough of a nerd to do this single-handedly. And Daiska and also Stuart, who's my technical director, Daiska is really the the brilliant brain behind the code. The way that the project operates is all the pieces in the collection are derived from the same moment. So each acts like a different recollection of that same moment. And the still images are automatically generated by an algorithm using the collector's hash, which works like a kind of um, DNA for generating the image. So there are variables that are used in building the image decisions that have to be made and those decisions are made based on the collector's hash which is you know the random number that you're assigned when you get a wallet and then the interactive video work that's in there is also a record of that same moment of creation but it's changeable through engagement from a viewer so this is matthew i think this is what you're referring to before if you interact with that if you click on it or touch it it changes the lighting within that past moment exactly yeah and so, and so the goal of that project was to you know present a past moment and experience its mutable nature collaboratively and it was created in in my studio which is taken on the look of a sort of the construction side of a house, which is uh, something that I've been using. I use the idea of the house as a stage for a shifting history and memory where the past can sort of be shaped into new stories and new histories and identity. The reason that a lot of the work that I make looks like it's, it's built within a house is that back again in 2014, we did live in a 19th century Dutch construction. And there was another house near us that was a historic building of the same era. And to make it seem more authentically of the era it was from, they dismantled the actually old Dutch roof <laughs> and they changed it from a gamble roof to a gambrel roof or, or what's called a Dutch roof by adding these angles to it. And that reconstruction of this roof line, you know, the idea was was that it would lend the home or the house or those within it this identity that has a lineage. And at that time, I was really preoccupied with Dutch history in the area. My dad is Dutch and Mm. I just had a son and I I was an immigrant. And I was also very interested in this act of kind of butchering the past to create a history. 
And I, I thought of this house, I was reading Washington Irving's fictional history of New York, and I thought of this house as like a, a house that his fictional historian, Detrick Knickerbocker, could live in, where these different myths, you know, and stories from the past were kind of like shaped together into these new stories to create a sense of identity. Right. And, you know, it's something that I'd, I'd seen early European art do, right? Like the Hudson Valley School, you know, borrowed from and woven these old histories and Dutch ghosts and German folklore and stuff into the American landscape to create a sense of identity for these new European arrivals in the land. I guess as I was becoming a father and thinking about family identity, I was just very interested in this process. So since then, maybe the last, you know, seven, eight years of, of my work has largely taken place in the construction side of a house. Yeah, it's interesting that this domestic space sort of becomes a character in the work. It has a, a presence in the work that's subtle, but still present all the time. Thinking back to the generative aspect of Modulator One, do you feel like NFTs and smart contracts specifically have sort of allowed you to expand the limits of what is possible using photography and video as a medium. I guess where I'm going with that is, do you see the medium for these works as the smart contract itself, or is it still the still image or the video? A combination. I certainly feel very empowered by or excited by the potential for smart contracts and the blockchain. I think even for work that I was making maybe 10 years ago that required uh, input from a viewer, I think that the smart contract has completely changed the way that that work can be experienced. But, you know, moving into generative work, I think I'm moving into something that I hadn't even anticipated being able to do. You know, I've always wanted to make the idea of something in the past being reauthorable an experience. And so Modulator One was really the first experiment for me in which I actually put the authorship of that into the hands of, of somebody else. I think that the near future of that is really exciting. I think we're probably going to see, you know, hopefully a lot of work in the near future in, in which these kind of tool sets are woven into the intent of the projects. Yeah, one interesting subtlety that I find in this work is that you're very interested in being able to either reinterpret or reauthor a moment from the past. And this is being done through a smart contract, which is actually immutable and can never be changed. And there's sort of a bit of a tension between the fixed, impossible to change nature of a smart contract on the blockchain, but also your desire to take these moments and be able to change them retroactively, looking back at them in a different way through the present. Yeah, I mean, that also, to, to me, that reminds me of a part of photography that I love, where I feel that while photography it shouldn't be burdened with the truth, it has no obligation to the truth, I've always been interested in the fact that the foundation of any of these photographic processes, at least that I'm using, our physical world is traced onto a light-sensitive substrate. And so I've always been interested in, you know, as we move away from that veracity in our processes as artists, what are the decisions, you know, even if that's just what lens am I using to change this or how is this being used by AI at the other end of the spectrum? But I think that the reasons for how and why we move away from that veracity is an access point to understanding the intent of the project and where the artist is coming from. Because I do feel like there is at its core a inevitable connection to our real physical world and to me, I'm sort of comfortable with the idea also that a work like this might have a single sort of source of permanent origin, yet be changeable and authorable uh, through its viewership. It seems akin to that. 
Looking back at some of your older work with the Portrait Machine Project, you used a camera called the Oracam 6000, a device from the 1970s that captures a subject's biofeedback through electronic sensors. And you mentioned in a previous interview that you're a bit obsessed with that period of scientific invention. You know, this whole tangent bizarre inventions in the fringe sciences that was sort of co-opted into parapsychology. And for listeners who who aren't familiar, can you describe the images in that series and tell us a bit more about your interest in this sort of fringe technology? And, you know, how do you balance this interest with cutting edge and obsolescent tech? Yeah, I mean, that moment that, you know, the spiritualist movement occurred partly because at the end of the Civil War, a lot of people had died in America and people were, they were mourning. And at that same time, there were so many rapid technological advances, people, I think, maybe sort of losing a sense of what was possible. There was a real sense of potential impossibility. The imaging devices were able to provide insights. So perhaps why not your lost ones, right? What came out of the spiritualist movement and what was sort of co-opted by the pseudosciences was this like adoption of sort of scientific currency. Sort of back up and give you an idea of what the Aura camera was. The Aura camera at the time that I used it was a relatively obscure uh, invention, but it had come out of those pseudosciences and it had that suggestion of scientific accuracy implied, right? It was like, it was based on a LAN camera. Right. It had one button. And the pretense was that the mechanism was very simple. What I found interesting about that was it was also directly connected to the subject. So Matthew, if I'm taking your portrait, you're connected to sensors that read biofeedback. And so for me to try to affect a portrait, I need to try to affect you. So in the making of these portraits, you know, if I was photographing Philippe Stark or Miranda July or whoever it might be, you know, I need to piss them off or I need to calm them down. And at the same time, you can participate in that power play. And that's really what got me hooked on that, is that I was interested in the power play and the dynamic between the photographer, the camera, the subject and the viewer. And I wanted to play with the camera's role in authoring a portrait and providing an insight. But it did draw me into a lot of research into that spiritualist movement. Right. Um, and also into the guy who invented it, who his name was Guy Coggins. And one thing that stayed with me after that project is that Guy Coggins, who was an engineer at Hewlett Packard before he, he got involved in, in making this camera. Interesting. He had created this mechanism to deal with or to present the world the way that he saw it. And you know, to try to use this implied veracity of the camera. And, but there was something about the fact that he built a camera to show people the way that he saw the world. <laughs> that definitely stayed with me. Mm -hmm. That was one of the things that I think later I took on. And I thought, you know, as I was waiting for people to build technology that I wanted to use, I, knowing stories like that gave me maybe the courage to think, well, maybe I should just build this. Yeah, I was just about to ask if you felt like your interest in this sort of obsolescent tech like the Oracam had led you to exploring potential for new lighting technologies with plate light. So that's very interesting to hear. And also this backstory of the guy who had made this camera. It all kind of comes full circle in a way. Yeah, I mean, my first urge was to take that camera apart and to turn it into something that, you know, <laughs> when if I'm taking you a photograph, Briley, and the camera measures your heartbeat and it knows you're excited, it starts dropping confetti from the ceiling during the portrait or something like that. <laughs> but it was definitely, 
I was wanting to take it apart and rebuild it. And so I, the urge was there. Yeah. And Raw collected a piece from that project, a portrait of a guy called Carlo McCormick, who's a writer, is a writer. Right. And is sort of very much part of the downtown New York art scene. He used to be, or maybe still is, I'm not sure, the uh, editor for Paper Magazine. Right on. And can you give us a hint at some projects that you have in the pipeline, whether it's with Satellite Lab or your own work or something else that we're not aware of? (laughs) One thing that's coming up soon is when I first met Studio 137 last year, it was because he was commissioning me to do a, a pretty large scale NFT, which is something we came together to create to raise funds for rescue dogs. And so 100% of the proceeds for this project are going to be going to shelters. Um, And we've been working on this since August, a little bit before last year. It was a very, very large scale production in the scheme of a NFT commission. And that is, it's coming out very soon. I think it's the next project that's coming out on Fellowship. So when Fellowship launches their new site, which I think is maybe this week, that'll be present there. And that is called Rescued. All right. That's very sweet. We'll be keeping our eyes out for it. And where can listeners follow you on social? I'm on Twitter, Carlo underscore Van de Ruhr. I'm on Instagram at Carlo Van de Ruhr. All right, Carlo. Well, it was really a pleasure to talk with you today. We've learned a lot. I, I, I know way more about cutting edge lighting technology now. I've never expected that um, after this, this brief conversation, but we've really covered a lot of ground. But thank you so much for your time today. And we're really looking forward to keeping up with all of the projects that are yet to be invented and created. So thanks again. Yeah, it's an exciting future for all of us. And thank you both of you guys for being so proactive at Raw and for for spearheading this. I've loved the first two podcasts, so I'm honored to be included. Thank you. You're most welcome. The pleasure is all ours. So thank you so much, Carlo. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of The Raw Review. You can find us online at rawdow.xyz and on Twitter at TheRawDAO. Join the conversation at discord.gg slash rawdow. The Raw Review podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. Views expressed by guests and the hosts do not reflect the views of RawDAO. The Raw Review podcast is not investment advice or a solicitation to make any financial decisions. NFTs and cryptocurrencies discussed in this episode are not endorsed by RawDAO. Do not purchase raw tokens, other cryptocurrencies, or NFTs in anticipation of financial returns. Please do your own research. research.